Hello, everybody. Um, we've had a busy week, so Hannah's been in Melbourne and I've been doing schoolwork, but we've um, come together on this public holiday to record Chapter 19, which I think is Session 10. Um, I'm really excited about this one. Um, I prepared it nearly a week ago and I've been waiting for Hannah dragging her chain. Um, what? Uh, <laughs> I haven't been home. <laughs> yeah, so she's come home, so now we're recording. Let's start by praying. Dear Lord, thank you for the way that you're bringing things together for your purpose. And we marvel at your goodness and the amazing way that you're um, restoring things just as you intended. Thanks for the part you've given us to play and thank you for the way we get to um, understand and watch what you're doing. I pray that you would um, open our eyes and our hearts a bit more today to the exciting way that you're drawing together your creation for your purpose and your glory and your name. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so it feels like a while ago for me, but Chapter 18 um, ends ends in a sense um, a whole sequence of chapters where, where in my view, they are more about... Um, helping the church in the first century that John's writing to and wanting to encourage, helping them to live now. Mm-hmm. I think a significant shift happens between chapter 18 and chapter 19 mm-hmm. because he really does move towards uh, a, f- a future hope. So mm-hmm. 19, 20 and then 21 and 22 mm-hmm. is really about the, the, the day of the Lord um, mm-hmm. the consummation of God's purpose in terms of redeeming, uh, his redeeming purpose that's run right throughout history. We're, cu- we're coming right to the very end of the very end in these last four chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, they're exciting from that perspective. Um, but I think that there's some important principles that we need to just consider before we open these last four chapters. Mm-hmm. First thing to say, and I've been hammering this a bit through our whole study of Revelation, is that John's primary concern is not explaining timing. Mm -hmm. Jesus is very clear. You're not going to be able to work out how the ends of things play out. It's Mm -hmm. not about John presenting us a precise sequence of events that we'll recognise as we um, get to... Um, each moment in the sequence. That's not his priority. A really good example from these last chapters is the Battle of Armageddon. It's Mm. been introduced in Chapter 16. Mm. Um, We return to it again in the second half of Chapter 19. Mm. It also forms a significant part of Chapter 20. So you can see what John's doing is he's returning to a significant event um, and saying different things about it, uh, giving it a different lens, a different perspective mm-hmm. in three different ways um, through four chapters. So don't read these. I don't think it's very helpful to read these um, final chapters as some sort of step-by-step chronology. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that said, in chapter 20, there is a sequence that we're not going to get to it today, but in our next section, session, mm-hmm. there is a sequence in chapter 20 that is quite important, um, but we'll get to that all in good time. Mm-hmm. So what is John doing? Well, I think that what he's doing is he's he's revealing a set of relationships that help explain God's purpose in redeeming and restoring his creation and establishing his kingdom. It's really important to understand God is not in the business of simply rescuing his people. What what history is moving to is full and complete restoration. Mm. Um, And and John, the scale of it is is total. It's Mm. all-consuming. All of creation will be caught up in this redemptive purpose of God. And John's visions in these last chapters present an extraordinary perspective of how total and complete this restoration is. But it's really, I think, one of the most helpful things that uh, has ever been pointed out to me about this book is you've got to have a bit of an understanding of John's Old Testament worldview to make sense of the set of relationships he's addressing in these last chapters. Mm. Um, I know some of you are probably listening to this driving a car, but if if you're sitting at a table or somewhere where you can pause, I would get a pen and paper and what I'm about to describe is quite visual. I would actually have a go at drawing it. Um, So I think it'll help you understand um, what's going on here. So let's have a go at explaining this this worldview that that'll set for us the key relationships that John addresses in these last chapters. The first point to make is that John is coming from a perspective where he, where he understands the story of Yahweh going right back to the beginning as a covenant-keeping God. Mm-hmm. He's a God who keeps covenant. Mm-hmm. What does that actually mean? That means God is a God who works through relationships. Mm-hmm. That's the significance of covenant. Yeah. He, he's a relationship-based God, mm-hmm. um, and, and he brings about his purposes through relationships. Mm-hmm. So we see all sorts of relationships. We'll get get to them in a minute. And obviously in the Old Testament, the central one is the covenants he makes with different individuals um, that result in this extraordinary relationship with Israel. Mm-hmm. But um, that's the first thing to keep in mind. God works through history in terms of establishing relationships and consistently working through relationships. So this is how I understand what's going on. I would draw on on a page a big X, a massive letter X. And when you make a letter X on a page, um, at the top of the page you'll have an inverted triangle in the middle that will come down to a point at the middle of an X and then you'll have a triangle at the bottom. and what we're seeing here is a, the triangle at the top starts broad and contracts to a, to a point. And then it moves in the bottom half from that point and it starts to expand again um, in terms of um, breadth and broad by the end. Yeah. Now, in terms of 
John's understanding of history, we can slot all the significant relationships or stages of God's relating to human beings mm. into this diagram. Mm. So if we start at the top, right at the at the broad in the broadest level, mm. we could start with creation yeah. as the broadest category. And you know, the story of the scriptures is um, within creation, human beings rebel. God's way of dealing with it is he sets apart Abraham mm. and it's through Abraham he's going to deal with human beings. I've skipped a whole lot of bits, but that's yeah. the key covenantal relationship. Mm-hmm. And that really is the founding of Israel. It's yeah. through Israel um, that God is going to work. So what you have is creation mm. narrowing to Israel about halfway down the, the, the triangle. Mm. And that's not to say God rejects everything that's not Israel. That's not at all what's happening in history. God's working through initially one individual for the benefit of many, through Abraham for the benefit of the people he interacts with, and he'll be a walking blessing. But the people of Israel become a nation mm through whom God relates to all the other nations. So it's not as though the other nations are excluded. They're included as they relate to Israel. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah. So um, stage one, creation. Stage two is Israel, but you should put in brackets next to it, and the nations because it's through Israel that he's relating to the nations. Mm -hmm. Now, Israel's story is one of unfaithfulness. God God faithfully keeps his promises to Israel and sustains them by his word, brings his prophets. Mm-hmm. Um, but Israel's consistently unfaithful and, and under judgment again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And what we have by the time of the exile is um, the prophets are starting to talk about within Israel there's a remnant mm-hmm. that is a small group within Israel who are taking relationship with Yahweh seriously and walking by faith. Mm. That is, being part of Israel is not enough. It's Mm. about are you responding obediently? Are you trusting the Lord? Are you seeking to live out your part of the covenant relationship? Um, And within Israel there's, there's this remnant Mm-hmm. Who who are ta- taking Yahweh seriously in their relationship with Yahweh? So coming back from Babylon, you have this uh, remnant people, but they're not the only remnant. Re- remnants are an idea of where, wherever you have faith in Israel, you have a remnant operating. Yeah, and generally, most of Israel will be will, will not be operating by faith. Um, mm-hmm. A great place to. Um, look at this is somewhere like Hebrews chapter 11, which talks about how faith is not a New Testament idea. Mm. um, The writer to the Hebrews goes right back into the Old Testament and points out all the people that related to God by faith, all Mm. the way from Abraham, um, all all down through the centuries. Mm. So, So we've now got creation, narrowing to Israel, narrowing to a remnant with Israel, by the time we get to the the um, New Testament period, mm. um, the the narrowings um, narrowed to one individual. 
Yeah. And that that's the coming of the Messiah. And so um, Jesus comes to embody faithful Israel, mm-hmm. a faithful human covenant partner mm-hmm. with God. And, and the, 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 one of the whole points of Jesus coming is that, um, um, is that he is the only human being that's ever been righteous, that's mm-hmm. ever walked faithfully in covenant, responding the way God intended for human beings to respond and share his life in covenant. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he, does it, um, he, he does it as an example to us, but much more importantly, on our behalf. He becomes our faithful covenant response, and that's what trusting him is all about. Mm-hmm. So the fulcrum of this X, the, the point at which um, things narrow to, to an absolute focus is, is the coming of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially the fulfilment of the Old Testament story. Mm-hmm. Then you have the gradual expanding um, in the second half, which is the New Testament story. Mm-hmm. So Jesus um, is like the first fruits of the restoration of humanity and the kingdom of God and covenant and all of those um, great themes of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, and out of, out of his person and work is, is forms a church. Mm-hmm. And so um, as, as we begin to expand, you have Jesus and through his apostles, the next level is it expands to the church, that is, um, this group of people that will represent Christ on earth, bear witness to his name, um, will, will be um, be the gathered people of God um, representing him and bearing witness to him on the earth, um, sharing his life by faith. Now, as, as we move towards the consummation of the age, it goes from Jesus to the church which are like which are like a remnant people living by faith in the New Testament era, mm. but there is a lot of teaching in the in the New Testament about God hasn't abandoned Israel, and there is there there is a, a God is going to bring about the fulfilment of His purpose in the ingathering of Israel and in the judgment of the nations. And so as we saw Israel and the nations in the New Testament story, they re-emerge, sorry, in the Old Testament story, they re-emerge in the New Testament story. So Jesus does lots of teaching about the role of Israel and the nations in the consummation of the age and the day of the Lord. So um, things like, uh, what's some examples? Um, uh, the teaching about the sheep and the goats. Do you know that story where, where he says, um, he's talking about the judgment of the nations and nations will be judged on how they've handled Israel. Mm. So there's still a place where God's bringing about his eternal purpose through Israel in relation to the nations. Mm. God handles nations through Israel. Even today he does, Mm. which is quite amazing. Now, um, the New Testament writers recognise this. This isn't strange theology. It's all over the place in the New Testament. So mm-hmm. right at the heart of Romans, which is Paul's um, explanation of the good news of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. uh, and um, what it means to be justified by faith, etc. you have chapters 9, 10 and 11 
which are about how God's fulfilling his purpose in history mm. through Israel um, mm. and how and he makes the, the amazing observation that the, the mystery of Israel is that even in their rejection of the gospel, God's still working his eternal purpose in terms of bringing people, um, Gentiles, into the people of God as a result of Israel's hard-hearted um, rejection of the gospel. Um, I won't get, get into that, but you've got Jesus expanding to the, a people of faith like a holy remnant on the earth. Um, and we've seen John use re remnant language to talk about the church in, in Revelation. We still have Israel and the nation, the judgment of the nations being central to, to how God's going to wind up the end, end of the age. And then finally, um, paralleling the very top of our diagram, mm -hmm. you have a new heaven and a new earth, which is like a completely restored creation. Mm -hmm. So just like the Old Testament story contracts from creation through Israel and nations through a remnant to Jesus, it expands in almost exactly the same way mm -hmm. um, through the, the church, um, this, this holy remnant on the earth. Um, the ingathering of Israel and the judgment of the nations and finally a new heaven and new earth bring about a completion to this entire picture. Mm -hmm. Make sense? Yeah. Now, how's this? That's, that's John's vision of God, how God has dealt with human beings through history. Mm -hmm. And it comes out of his Old Testament um, Jewish heritage but it looks forward to, to a future when all of those things um, uh, will be fulfilled and resolved. So in, in that light, Revelation 19 through 22, um, what we'll see is the resolution of each of these key relationships in terms of God's redemptive purpose. Mm -hmm. So there'll be sections that are d directly about um, the church, Mm -hmm. There'll be sections that are about the ingathering of Israel and the judgment of the nations, mm -hmm. and there'll be sections about um, the restoration of a new heaven and a new earth. Mm -hmm. So I've got a second diagram here. You can tell I'm a school teacher. I'd put, I would have put these on the whiteboard if you were all in front of me, but um if we're thinking about relationships in 19 to 22, I would have um, like a mind map with three circles. Mm -hmm. One mind map, one circle is for the church, mm -hmm. and this is the the picture. The pictures connected with the church are about the elect, the bride, the wedding feast, all of that sort of imagery um, works in relation to the church. And then you have um, another circle which is um, Israel, mm. um, and Israel is dealt with nationally. That's a really important thing to understand. They're dealt with as a nation, mm -hmm. um, and that's about God uh, redeeming them through being their, their great conquering Messiah, um, and, and, and lots of imagery connected to Jerusalem and the holy city and Mount Zion and all of those prophetic promises about the fulfilment of Israel. Um, and then you have a third circle or a third group, which is about 
God dealing with the world. Um, and he deals with the world in terms of its nations. It's a national, um, um, in these last few chapters, it's about nations being gathered for judgment. Um, and, and there's a terrible feast um, and, and an, an enormous battle that's connected to how God's going to resolve um, the nations. So you have church, Israel, and the nations are the three relational elements that we'll see in chapter 19 through 21. And my uh, my thesis, I suppose, would be chapter 19 really focuses on um, the relation between the church and the world. Mm-hmm. So the first half of the chapter is about the bride, the second half of the chapter is about um, the nations being gathered for judgment. That's 19. Mm-hmm. Um, chapter 20 is really focusing on the relationship between Israel and the nations, mm-hmm. and that that's uh, consummation through an enormous victory in battle. Mm-hmm. Um, and surprise, surprise, chapter 21 and chapter 22 is really about the coming together of the church and of Israel into the one people of God. And so there's lots of amazing imagery in those last two chapters that we'll see about the merging of faithful Israel and the the faithful church in imagery that's drawn from the New Testament and the Old Testament. Lots and lots to do with the temple um, the bride and the holy city. The bride, the holy city, the coming together of, of pictures that we connect with the church and pictures that we connect with Israel being merged into one glorious picture of one united covenant people of God. Mm-hmm. So just to sum up, um, and I think, yeah, if you've got what I've, I've talked about here, um, you'll see it in these last four chapters. John is not primarily producing a chronological sequence of end-time events. What he's doing is is he's resolving the key relationships that have shaped God's dealing with humanity from the beginning of history. Mm -hmm. And the three three big elements are the church, Israel, Mm -hmm. and the nations. And and 19, 20, and then 21 and 22 will really look at um, relationships between these three groups in three distinct ways. Revelation chapter 19. Hallelujah. After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, 
Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The Rider on the White Horse I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Okay, so chapter 19... Um, a really ex- the first half of the chapter is a really ex- exciting, celebratory, joyous moment. Where, where are we, Hannah? In you- heaven. Yep, yep. So we're definitely. Can you? Could you be more precise? There's 24 elders and four living creatures, and they're worshiping God seated on the throne. Where particularly? In the throne room. Right. We're back in the throne room where we've been a number of times through through um, John's uh-huh. uh, John's visions um, and we're at the time of the end so th- this this really is a celebration um, of the beginning of what what we would call the day of the Lord uh, where God will bring together heaven and earth so the very end of time that's what everything's about the bringing together of heaven and earth. And that's a really helpful way to think through these last four chapters. That's what God's going to do ultimately is bring heaven and earth together. Mm -hmm. Um, That is the consummation 
of, of the end of the age. That is what the day of the Lord's all about. So this section begins with sort of a fourfold hallelujah. Um, hallelujah literally means praise the Lord. Mm-hmm. And we've got a mo- great multitude in heaven shouting hallelujah and then um, se- um, celebrating um, a number of important themes. What sort of things ca- uh, come out of this? these songs that the redeemed are proclaiming in heaven? Um, salvation and glory and power belong to God. Yeah, yep, good. So the first one is about um, acknowledging God for, for who he is. And in particular, um, you can see there, they're celebrating the righteous judgment of Babylon that's taken place. And we've re- mm-hmm. we read about that in the previous chapter. And the fact that the blood of the servants has been avenged, God's um, been faithful and, and dealt righteously with um, Babylon and mm-hmm. vindicated his servants who Babylon has killed. Um, then you then you get um, an encourage an, an encouragement that that every everyone great or small praise God, um, Hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. So again, it's it's about um, celebrating. Um, uh, the coming of the kingdom where where um, we have the Lord God Almighty reigning over his people, ruling righteously. Mm. And then um, perhaps what is the most important focus of these um, celebratory um, sort of songs, um, the observation, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So what what are we seeing going on here? There's a wedding. Right. There's a a, um, massive event Mm. Who's who's involved in this wedding, and and how do, how are we thinking about what this wedding actually is all about? The wedding of the lamb, the lamb and the church. Yeah, good. Um, and that our understanding, our understanding of what we're witnessing here is a is a thread or a story that goes right back into our um, understanding of of the biblical story. So this idea of God's people being a bride um, goes right back to the prophets. You know, um, the the last chapters in Isaiah talk a lot about Israel as a bride, mm-hmm. that in, in that case it's an unfaithful bride that God's going to win back and woo back and yeah. um, they're going, going to live to ever, ever, together and God will be like a bridegroom. Mm-hmm. But in the New Testament, um, Jesus makes much of this this uh, imagery around God being like a bridegroom for for his faithful people who are like a bride. Mm. Um, can you think of any stories where we you see imagery connected to brides and bridegrooms? Um, all that's coming to mind is the wedding. At- 
Yeah, well, that's the, we'll talk about that one. I think that's the most important one to talk about. There's lots of other places too. You know, he t- there's parables of wedding banquets mm. where he's warning Israel to be ready. Um, you know, and and the the tragedy of a bride who's not ready when the bridegroom turns up. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's um, John the Baptist uses imagery of bri- the bri- bride and a bridegroom, um, saying when the bridegroom turns up, he has to get out of the way. Um, at the beginning of John, it's a way of his him understanding his relationship with Jesus in John chapter three. Um, There's that story. It might not be wedding related, but that story about the banquet and <laughs> the people who were invited didn't want to come, so they just went and invited. Yeah, yeah, that, there, there's another one. Yeah, they go go to the highways and byways and just invite any old riffraff to come. Yeah, well, I don't think they say highways and byways, but yeah, that's um, the idea. Let's talk about John too, because um, that that'll help make the point that that we that we need to see here. So in John two, right at the beginning of John's gospel, it's actually the first um, significant event that Jesus is connected to in his ministry in John's gospel, and that's saying something. Mm. Um, Jesus goes to a wedding at Cana mm. um, it's, and performs his very first miracle. Now, my question is, why do you think that John has arranged his material in his gospel with this wedding right as the very first event. Mm. It's like when you write an essay and your introduction sort of gives a taste for what the conclusion's going to be. Yeah, yeah, it's a sign. It's a sign that points to um, the meaning of Jesus through the whole of the gospel. If you want to understand what's this gospel about, who's this Jesus about, mm. um, if you if you understand the sign, you'll pick up, all sorts of things about the significance. Um, what what does the wedding at Cana point to? One of the things that's interesting about it is there's this is one of the the only miracles in in John where there's no discourse. Jesus doesn't explain it. Mm. The point is, I think, that the entire gospel explains this story. Mm. Um, metaphorically, why why would why is a wedding so strongly connected to Jesus' ministry and mission. Why is that an appropriate sign for for everything he wants to accomplish? How does a wedding explain the gospel? Because um, he's doing something that's going to make a way for the bride to be purified? Yeah. Yeah. Prepared for the marriage. Yeah, yeah. The, the, what's going on here is not first and foremost about dealing with sin. Mm. It's about coming and being and a, a, able to share life with the ones he loves. Mm. Um, like, like a bride and, and a groom are joined and share life, um, intimacy and love. Mm. That's the picture of what God is doing, sending Jesus to the earth. It's about life and grace and abundant blessing. Um, 
in the context of a covenant relationship that's pure and holy. That's what a marriage, that's what a marriage is all about. Mm. Um, it's a sign that explains God's heart above all else. Jesus is coming, um, is all about intimate love, wanting to be with his people, celebrate with them, mm. um, be joined to to. Um, to them, um, and in the sense that we're talking about, it, it's a set, it's the coming together of heaven and earth um, in this miraculous event at the wedding at Cana as well. Um, it's like heavens come to the earth, and um, Jesus Jesus is um, uh, a guest at the wedding, but as you read the story. He's he almost takes the place of the bridegroom. He becomes the central figure, the figure around whom everyone else mm. is is operating. Um, he's the bridegroom, but he's also the provider of um, the wine, the blessing. Um, mm. um, and what what we'll see is he is the blessing in in that sense. Um, in that symbolic sense as well. So this picture of God coming and joining uh, with human beings, with his church Mm. in this relationship, well, with his covenant people in this holy relationship of love, um, Mm. symbolised by a wedding, is what we're seeing in Revelation chapter 19. Um, John picks up on a, on the exact same thing in the, at the end of Ephesians, do you remember, where he talks about husbands and wives being like John Jesus. Does. Sorry, not John, Paul. Yeah. Um, at the end of Ephesians chapter 5 where he talks about husbands and wives and compares uh-huh. them as a um, uh, to Christ and the church yeah. and the relationship between Christ and the church. We won't get side sidetracked but what you have here is the consummation Mm. of the covenant people of God the promise that God would gather a people protect them look after them and that one day he would return like a like a bridegroom coming to to collect his bride Mm. um that's what we're seeing here what are some of the features of the of the bride In, in, in Revelation. Re- Revelation, yeah. Um, uh, the bride is re- has made herself ready. That's interesting, isn't it? Think, go back to chapter two and three. What what, what was what was all of that? Those exhortations to the seven churches about it was about make sure you're ready, make yeah. sure you're pure. You know, it's all about resisting and staying faithful and repenting. That's how you make yourself ready. Mm. Um, Make yourself ready for the bride on the earth. Okay. Yep, it's for the bridegroom on the earth. What else about the bride? Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Yeah, and it says that that, that linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Mm-hmm. So, again, we've, we've talked about this um, a number of times, but th- that idea of being clothed in white, pure and holy, mm. um, in one sense, we're clothed in a righteousness that's that's a gift. Mm. Um, Jesus' righteous deeds and acts, mm. but this is clearly saying 
it's the deeds and acts of the church, the saints itself, that that are, that are the clothing that the bride wears. Mm. Um, these are God's deeds, but they're holy, and they become our deeds by um, the fact that our life is joined to His life. Um, and then, and then that proclamation: "Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding of the Lamb." Um, it's a picture. It's a picture of radical love and of um, complete fulfilment. It finishes this section with a really interesting um, verse that I've thought a lot about. Um, it, it really has struck me over recent weeks and months, and I, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this verse. See at the end how, of verse 10 how it says, Worship God for the testimony. Now, I'll go back a bit. I am a fellow, this is an angel telling um telling John not to not to bow down to him. Um, don't do it, he says. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Mm. Um, and I've always I've always just thought about that verse, maybe brushed over that statement a little bit, thinking, oh the gospel is prophetic in that sense that it that it proclaims some the gospel proclaims something prophetic, but I think in a deeper way what 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 that statement for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Mm. I think what the angels actually pointing out to John here is something about the coming together of heaven and earth. Mm. So. When, when we're thinking about the testimony of Jesus, mm. I don't think it's simply talking about the testimony or the witness about Jesus. Mm. I think it's talking about that it is Jesus' testimony, the testimony of Jesus. That is, John is observing in heaven Jesus bearing witness to himself. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That... that um, John is actually watching Jesus' works and words in heaven. Mm. So the testimony of Jesus is something taking place in heaven and the point of this verse is it's saying that is the spirit of prophecy, prophecy something that happens on the earth. Mm. Does that make sense? So I think, I think the, the, the two parts of the, of, of the statement are, John is, John is witnessing something about Jesus' life and work in heaven mm -hmm. and the angel's pointing out that is what it means to prophesy on the earth. That is, on the earth, what, are you what is prophecy declaring? What is prophecy making sense of? Mm -hmm. Well, it's making sense of Jesus' life and work in heaven. Mm -hmm. From a heavenly perspective, it's the testimony of Jesus from an earthly perspective, it's the spirit of prophecy. Mm. Um, we, we often have this mistaken view of prophecy that prophecy is somehow about predicting the future or foretelling. Mm. It's not so much. It's about foretelling, that is sharing God's heart with people right now. Mm. Bearing witness. Yeah, bearing bearing witness to to God's heart, God, 
that's expressed in his words and his deeds and his his actions mm-hmm. um, in a way that that um, can encourage, exhort, um, challenge uh, the faithful on the earth. Mm-hmm. So I think that what you have here is something quite profound where where the angel's pointing out to John is watch what's going on here. You're watching Jesus mm. act and work and speak in power, ruling and reigning as the great bridegroom in this mm. case. In a minute, you, we, you're going to watch him as the great conqueror on his white horse. Mm. But these things, when they're declared on the earth, that is the spirit of prophecy because it reveals God's heart. Mm-hmm. Um, observations about what Jesus is up to in heaven is, is really about uh, an, an open heaven that's, that, that's revealing God's heart to people on the earth. So before we move on, let, let's just um, understand something about how radical this picture is. It's a beautiful picture, but it's a picture of radical love, total passion, total commitment mm-hmm. of the land, but also of the bride. Um, this earth, earthly bride, this earthly church, sort of entering into its heavenly state as as the betrothed of the Lamb. Um, it makes me think back to the chapters that have gone before. You know, the previous chapters have been about a harlot and beasts and everything about this bride is absolutely, totally opposed to a harlot who would you know, sell herself to all, whereas you've got a bride here who's chaste and holy. Um, The contrast in the way the harlot's dressed and what the harlot's doing, drinking filth from a cup, whereas this bride um, is is coming in in purity and holiness for Christ alone. It's an amazing picture. Um, and, And this... What a what a privilege it is that we have the opportunity to share this testimony of Jesus with people on the earth today. Um, this this is the gospel story that that <coughs> God is working things, working out His purposes, but right at the heart of it is this holy relationship where human beings are going to get to share God's life as his holy bride. Um, it's all about intimacy and love, mm-hmm. gracious love. Um, it's all about human beings be, um, becoming everything that God ever intended them to be. So from verse 11, you, you, we, we see a shift here, don't we? Mm-hmm. So attention in the previous verses has been on this beautiful bride. Mm-hmm. Coming from the earth to meet her husband. Mm-hmm. Now our attention shifts to the bridegroom. Mm-hmm. And um, what's really interesting is the whole picture shifts. This bridegroom is preparing for battle. Mm-hmm. And that's what the next section's about. But um, John is strongly wanting to um, put these two events side by side, and we'll see how he does it. The wedding of the lamb is intentionally being put right next to this final battle where the great conqueror, the lamb, is going to ride out and um, 
um, decisively defeat his enemies. Mm. Um, and there's all sorts of imagery that's weaving these two stories together. Um, um, it's, it's a very, very interesting chapter from that perspective because when you sit back and think, what has, what has a wedding got to do with this extraordinary battle? And John's making the very point, They go, I want you to think about them together. Mm. So let's have a go at doing that. So, um, again, it's a picture of an open heaven. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. And then there's a long description that's very reminiscent of a description we've seen before, mm. eyes like blazing fire, head has many crowns um, and has a name written, he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. Um, again, that's pointing out um, his extraordinary authority. To be named is to be under authority. Mm. So the, he's a person that has a name that no one else knows except him. In other words, there is no authority over the top of him. He, he is the highest authority. Um, robe dipped in blood, um, armed with the word of God, and the armies of heaven follow, mouth like a sharp sword, ruling with an iron scepter, treading the winepress, um, king of kings and lord of lords. These are all... Um, Images that we've seen through Revelation. Mm-hmm. Who clearly have we got here? Jesus. We've got Jesus in, in awesome power. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this is very reminiscent of that vision in chapter 1 that made John fall down like one dead. Mm-hmm. Um, this is like unveiled glory. You're seeing the lamb. Um, what aspects of the lamb do, do some of these pictures uh what are they unlocking for us in terms of how how are we being encouraged to think about this lamb in his, his unveiled glory? Eyes like fire, you know, mouth, out of his mouth came a sharp sword, ruling with an iron scepter. Holy and just and with authority, powerful. Yep, great. All of those things, holiness, great authority, a conqueror, um, Enormous power that's connected particularly to the word of God. Um, a holy judge, someone who's, got, you know, that treading the wine press recalls chapter 14. King of kings and Lord of lords. Um, this is a name of God in the Old Testament. So he rides out faithful and true to judge and make war. So what, what are we seeing here? What's going on? Well, I think what, what, we, what we're seeing is the heavenly reality. This is the manifestation of the victory, isn't it? So um, when, when, when we talk about the lamb, mm-hmm. where did the lamb achieve his victory? On the cross. On the cross. But it was veiled. Mm-hmm. That is only open to faith. But there would cut. There will come a time mm. when it would be manifest. The victory would be manifest to all, unveiled in all its power and glory. Mm. And in in terms of the story of history, that's the point where we're at now. At the consummation of the age, 
Jesus' victory is going to be seen for what it is, enormous power, authority, holiness, uh, a, a, con- a conquest of all conquests, um, mm-hmm. the judgment of the world. Um, and, and what we're seeing in this, this section is, is um, the, the unveiling. So um, in the Old Testament, the, the, this day, the day of the unveiling where the Messiah will be seen for who he truly is, is called the day of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're seeing two aspects to the day of the Lord. The first aspect has come through the key event in the first half of the chapter, which was the wedding. The, wedding. the second aspect is an enormous battle that, that will, will resolve and finally judge um, his enemies. So can you see this is a saving and judging picture, um, just like we've been talking about right through the book. Um, you have a wedding and a battle that reflect two sides of a coin in a sense. The day of the Lord has a saving aspect. For God's whole, the holy remnant of God's covenant people, it'll be a wedding feast. For his enemies, the day of the Lord that they'll see his glory too, but they'll see it from the side of his wrath, mm-hmm. and it it will be um, the the final judgment, mm-hmm. the manifestation of his power and holiness, and um, the this final battle will be an awesome judgment of God's enemies. Mm-hmm. Both are both are expressions of his holiness, but they're been respond his holiness has been responded to differently yeah yeah isn't that so true so in one picture he's a bridegroom waiting for his beloved bride Mm. just overwhelmed with this love and in the other he's a conqueror riding out on a white horse leading an army Mm. to defeat all his enemies um, one of the sentences that, that, or one of the images that strongly links the two pictures together, we, we'll see in verse um, 17 and 18. Do you want to just read 17 and 18 from the chapter? And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in mid, midair, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Okay. So can you see um, what what John is seeing here is another sort of supper, supper that people being invite, are being invited to. Mm-hmm. The first one, blessed are those who are invited to the, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Mm-hmm. Um, come, gather together for the great supper of God. What sort of supper is this one? Vultures eating the flesh of people. Yeah, this is a a supper of terrible judgment where the enemies of God will be eaten by, yeah, it says birds here, all the birds flying, but actually the word in Greek is predatory birds, birds like vultures that feast on the dead. Mm -hmm. So this is a terrible feast. Um, but in terms of the, of the imagery, you can see um, we're, we're really seeing a feast that reflects God's glory and his holiness from two sides, from the perspective of those who are his faithful covenant people 
and another feast from the perspective of those who are going to endure a, a terrible defeat and, and de- devastation. Wow. Do you want to add any more about that? No. So, um, again, this, this battle we've seen in 1616, it, the location of this battle in 1616 was um, Armageddon, mm-hmm. and that's that's really just linking it back to um, old prophetic Old Testament pictures about a final battle at the end of the age. Um, but what we see at the end of this chapter here is um, all the enemies of God gathered for war. And, and again, this idea of gathering coming through this chapter strongly as well. Mm. Um, he, uh, he's gathering his covenant people um, to, to save them and, and to bring them into his life, but he's gathering his enemies as well. Um, he's gathering the nations to, to ju- judge and condemn. The phrasing of both small and great is used both times as well. Yeah, good. There's another link. Yeah. That, yeah, I hadn't even noticed that. You're right. So praise God, you who fear him, both small and great, and on the other side um, that you'll eat the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Yeah, there's lots of, if you, if you like your literary allusions, there's lots of parallels that, that John's using to try and, um, show us that these two pictures go together. So in terms of the culmination of this battle, we, we don't see the dragon specifically here because the dragon comes into focus in Chapter 20 very strongly, but the other two elements of this unholy trinity, the beast, the devourer of people, and the false prophet, the deceiver of people, mm-hmm. both... Um, sort of reflecting the two tactics of the enemy, brute power and deception and seduction, that we've seen lots in the preceding chapters, um, these two meet their final end and are thrown into the lake of fire. That is eternal judgment. And the rest are killed by the sword that comes out of um, out of the lamb's mouth. Um, it's a picture of just total victory. Now, where's this, where's this picture come from? It, it comes very, very strongly from two key Old Testament texts, and it's actually worth taking a little bit of time to have a look at both of these because we'll see some things about um, what, it, what God is doing in, the, in, this, in this final um, battle at the end of the age. Okay, so let's have a quick look at Joel chapter 3. Now, this is a chapter that we've seen a couple of times in our study of Revelation, but it's, it's so central to what we're looking at here. Um, lo- uh, lots and lots of the Im- imagery in Revelation chapter 19 is drawn straight from this chapter. Um, we won't read it all. Again, I would encourage you to read it all. We're just going to pick out a few verses. So, Hannah, could you read just verse 1 to 3? In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, my people Israel, for they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine that they might drink. 
Okay, so where where do you remember right at the start of the session today we were talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, it's really helpful to think relationally about what's going on in these last chapters. Yeah. What what's going on here? Um, what relationships can you see? The relationship between the nations and Israel. Right. God's going to judge the nations. Why? For how they treated Israel, dividing up yeah, yeah. the land. And... Yeah, he's going to enter into judgment against the nations because of how they've treated Israel. Um, that's a really helpful um, that's a really helpful thing to see. Mm. Note that who's gathering the nations? God is. Yeah, and this is a really interesting thing about um, this final battle mm. um, that we see in chapter 19. These nations think that they're gathering to defeat God's okay. covenant God's covenant people, and we'll see in chapter 20 that, that, that are um, under threat, mm. but it is God who's gathering for the purpose of judging them. Mm. Um, they think that they're going to gather to destroy God's covenant people and the, the anointed, but um, they're actually being gathered for judgment. Mm. Okay. Um, verse. Let's skip down to maybe verse 11 to 13. Come quickly, all you nations from every side, and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Okay, what does that remind you of? Um, The last bit reminds me of Chapter 14, that the, um, the blood from the... The wine, wine press, something, yeah. How many stadia? I can't remember. Yeah, and swing the sickle as well was that the harvest, the mm. harvest being ripe. So it's that that imagery that's come out of um, the Old Testament prophets. Um, yeah, this is a picture of God's righteous wrath, which we've seen a number of times mm. um, in those um, preceding chapters. Um, these are these are nations being called to prepare for war, but what what they're actually going to experience is God's righteous judgment. Um, skip down and read maybe sixteen and seventeen. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for His people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. Okay. And it continues with this amazing picture of a restored um, a, a restored Israel um, mm. and the Lord dwelling in Zion. So th- these, these are the two verses that, that I want to spend most time just thinking about. What's going on here? So that's an explanation in verse 16 and 17 about why these th- th- this, this final judgment of the nations is taking place. What's God doing? Protecting a people for himself. Right. Um, and 
I, I think it's really significant. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Mm. One of the things that's um, significant uh, throughout the story of God's relationship with his people Israel and the church as well mm. is that he's always been a refuge for his people. Mm. But how would you know? Protection? Yes. Can you see it? Well, it depends what you mean by that. You can see some elements of protection. Yeah, that's true. Um, but if, if you were to say, if you were to say to people, or say to Israel, God is your refuge, mm. um, or you say, say to the church, God is your refuge. You know it by faith. Yeah, yeah. In the, in this period between the cross and the, and the final unveiling, it's something that you know by faith. What's going on here is is that people, Israel, who haven't walked with God by faith are going to know, or even if they have, they're going to know that the Lord your God dwells in Zion and that that the Lord will be a refuge for his people. So part of what's going on here is the end of the age is about the vindication of God. God's been waiting, 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 waiting to intervene um, in an in an unveiled way in history, mm. and he's been waiting because he wants to give people an opportunity to draw near by faith, mm. to respond to the gracious gift of Jesus' life. But that looks like that could be misconstrued, or it could look like that Jesus is not there for his people, or not a refuge, or not reliable, or not faithful. Um, yeah. The delay could, can look can cause people to ask or wonder about many things. Mm-hmm. The whole point is that there will come a time where, in an unveiled way, God will show His heart for His people. Mm-hmm. And in this case, in Joel three, it'll be revealed in in a um, devastating victory against the enemies of Israel. Mm-hmm and gathering the nations for judgment for how they've treated Israel. And um, through it, God's people will know that he's He's their Lord and their God and that he dwells with them and that he is a refuge. So what, what's going on here? Well, it's about a vindication of God's right, righteousness. He, he isn't just just and faithful. He will be seen to be just and faithful. That's what's going on at the end of the age. We'll, we'll see for those for those that are His and a part of His people. They'll see a God who, and, and they'll be able to say, "Ah, oh, you were you you were always our refuge. Yeah. Even when I couldn't see it, you were always there." Yeah, so God God protects and blesses his people now, but we can only attribute it to God by faith. Yeah. Whereas at the end of the age, it will be clear. Yeah, yeah, and by sight, you'll actually see. So, again, this, this unveiling, 
this final unveiling, which is really quite significant, is not about repentance. You see that? The, the, the age of repentance is the age of the gospel. Mm. Um, the call to repentance is a response by faith mm. to what God has done in Jesus, and that is the gospel. Mm. When we get to the final end of the age, it's about vindication. God mm. will be God will be seen for who He always has truly been. Yeah. Jesus will be seen as the great conqueror that he was on the cross and has always been, but you'll see it with your eyes. And for those that love him and know him, that will be that that will be vindication. You know, oh, that's he's the God that's always been with me. Mm. But for the enemies of God, mm. it, it they will see it as well. And it's not an opportunity for repentance. It's it's that God will be vindicated, that he'll, he'll, he will be seen to be who he truly is. Mm. Um, you know, you've thought God is weak and doesn't look after his people and whatever else, and, and you can get away with whatever you think that you're getting away with, but the nations in the end, there will be recompense, there will be judgment, and you'll see that this God is king of kings and lord of lords, and you'll have to kiss the sun whether you like it or not. Okay, let's have a quick look at Ezekiel 38 and 39. One of the things I should have said with the Joel passage, because it applies here just as strongly as well, um, we're not focusing on what precedes the, these, these um, chapters about the judgment of the nations. But in Joel, the end of Joel chapter 2, um, just before the gathering for judgment in the valley of Jehoshaphat, is a whole section on the rest of the restoration of Zion powered, sorry, um, and the poured out spirit. Hmm. And in a sense, it's a picture of consummation, very similar to the wedding supper of the of the Lamb. And what Joel's doing is he's putting um, a cell, the the consummation of salvation. Hmm right next to the consummation connected to the judgment of the nations mm. because the Old Testament prophets understood that the day of the Lord was about both things. Mm. It was about the day of the poured out spirit and, and Israel, um, you know, coming into the fulfilment of kingdom life um, right next to there'll be vindication and, and judgment of the nations. Now, exactly the same thing happens here with Ezekiel. Um, here's a little bit of homework if you're listening. These chapters from 37 to the end of Ezekiel, 11 chapters or so, are really, really important and, and are probably the central text for these last four chapters of Revelation. And maybe as a bit of homework, I'd encourage you to go and read from chapter 37 all the way to the end of Ezekiel 48. to 48. Um it will really help make sense of navigating through um, chapters 19 to 22 of Revelation. Um, we're just going to focus mostly on chapter 38 and 39 today. But understand, chapter 37 is an amazing chapter. Um, th this is a chapter all about the promise of the restoration of David's kingdom. And you have this picture of the valley of dry bones, which is like the resurrection of Israel 
Israel coming back to life from the dead and being restored and the promise that God will put his spirit in his people and that they will live again. Um, let's just read two verses. It's so great. 37, 12 to 14. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will set, I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Do you see the, the repetition of that phrase again? Then yeah. you will know that God, God's saying at the end of the age, there's going to come a time where I will be vindicated. That, that you will all, I'm doing this because I want you all to know that, mm-hmm. that um, uh, what does he want them to know? That, uh, that, that he's the Lord and that he's done this and that uh, he hasn't forgotten his promises to Israel. Mm-hmm. So, you know, chapter 37 is all about he's going to gather Israel and Judah and make them one nation under one king again, and he's going to cleanse the land. Israel will be holy, mm-hmm. um, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, that great promise that's um, accompanied Israel right through its history. Mm-hmm. This is co- the consummation of the covenant that the wedding supper of the Lamb is a picture of. That, that, that is what the wedding supper is. It's a picture of consummation of the covenant. Mm-hmm. That is, consummation is the idea of bringing together the covenant partners uh, and bonding them like in a marriage. Mm-hmm. And that's why um, a, a wedding feast is such an appropriate picture. Mm-hmm. Okay, what follows is chapter 38 and 39. So what we've seen is what will Israel discover on the day of the Lord. Well, they will, there's things that God wants them to know, mm. um, that he wants his faithful or his covenant people to know, but there's things that the nations are going to know as well. So chapter 38 and 39, we won't read it all, but it's a picture of the nations coming together to, an, to attack Israel. And what you see here, which is really interesting, have a look at verse 7 of 38. Just read verse 7. Get ready, be prepared, you and all the hordes gathered gathered about you and take command of them. Right. That's God's command to the nations. So Mm. this is really interesting. The nations are attacking Israel Mm. at the command of God. Mm. What does that tell you? That God is sovereign. Yeah, God is sovereign and in control. Have a look at verse 11. Uh, you will say, I will invade a land of unwalled villages. I will attack a peaceful and unsuspecting people, all of them living without walls and without gates and bars. So well, what's going on there in relation to what, what we've just talked about, God gathering um, and commanding these nations? Um, the nations are sort of boasting of their powerful position. Yeah, they're believing that they're in charge of their destiny. I will invade and I will do this and I will do that, um, thinking that they're in total control, um, not recognising that God, it's God who's actually gathered them. Yeah, it reminds me of 
when it's talking about the beast who boasts and, and blasphemes, like that's almost blasphemous because God has said that he's protecting his people. Yeah, yeah, it is. That's true. It, 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 it's it's that mystery we talked about it many sessions ago about how God would harden Pharaoh's heart, mm-hmm. but Pharaoh would harden his own heart. That both of those things are true at once. Mm-hmm. And if you look at Cain or Pharaoh or Judas, um, what you'll have is a person making choices, or in this case, nations making decisions mm-hmm. to go to war, but recognize that God is sovereign. Hey, um, there, there is nothing that happens in all of um, history that, that God is not in control of in terms of the bigger picture. It's him who's gathering and bringing about his purpose, um, even through his rebellious enemies. Okay, um, we'll do this fairly quickly, but let's just have a look at a couple of verses. R- read verse 16 and 23. 3816. You will advance against my people Israel like a cloud that covers the land. In days to come, O Gog, I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. Okay, what's what's that saying? He he's gonna bring the nations against Israel. Why? To show himself as holy. So that the nations may know me when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. Yep, so um, this is all about the God vindicating himself, that he's going to be seen to be holy by those he rescues, Israel, mm-hmm. and by those he destroys, mm-hmm. the rebellious nations who seek to go to war. Um they will know him not in not as the bridegroom, but as the great conqueror on the white horse. Um, and the battle itself will be the judgment. Um, Thirty-eight twenty-three says something similar. And so I will show my greatness and my holiness, and I will make myself known in the sight sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So they're going to know that He's the Lord. Not for repentance, not in mercy mm. or grace, but in wrath. Mm. How will they know? How how will they know that he's the Lord? He's gonna smash them. Mm. That's the picture. So um, the the story the story continues. Um, Thirty nine. You see the outcome of the battle and all that imagery around feasting. Um, comes straight out of this passage in Ezekiel. So John's, John's um, w- when he talks about the battle at Armageddon being a feast, um, that's very much exactly taken from Ezekiel chapter 39. Just read um, 39, um, 17 to 20, and you'll get the idea. Son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Call out to every kind of bird and all the wild animals. Assemble. Sorry, assemble and come together from all around to the sacrifice I am preparing for you, the great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel. There you will eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth as if they were rams and lambs, goats and bulls, all of them fattened animals from 
Bashan, at the sacrifice I am preparing for you, you will eat fat till you are glutted and drink blood till you are drunk. At my table, you will eat your fill of horses and riders, mighty men and soldiers of every kind, declares the Sovereign Lord. So it's a feast for the wild animals, um, mm-hmm. devastating picture. It's a terrible picture of um, the overwhelming and total defeat of God's enemies. Okay. Um, you know, we, we, we could look at all sorts of all sorts of verses through through this next chapter. Um, 39 as well and and the language continues it, it it's it's all about making known his holy name um so 39 7 i will make known my holy name among my people israel i i will no longer let my holy name be profaned and the nations will know that i the lord and the holy one in israel it is coming it will surely take place declares the sovereign lord um, so, again, that two-sided, I will make myself known mm. to enemies but also to Israel. They will know that he's their God, but the nations will know he's the God of Israel as well. Look uh, toward the end of the chapter. Just read verse 21, Hannah. I will display my glory among the nations and all the nations will see the punishment I inflict and the hand I lay upon them. Okay, 39.27 will be the last one. When I have brought them back from the nations and have gathered them from the countries of their enemies, I will show myself holy through them in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that, oh, sorry. Yeah, that'll do. So what's that mean? I will show myself holy through them in the sight of many nations. Well, it's talking about Israel now. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it keeps moving between what the nations are going to see and what Israel are going to see. I will show myself holy through them. How's God showing himself to be holy through Israel? Keeping his covenant? Yeah, as the the God who keeps covenant. Um, So let's just say a couple of things to sum up. I hope um, if you're listening to this, you're getting the picture um, not just not just of where the, the imagery in chapter 19's come from, but um, what the prophet Joel and the prophet Ezekiel are, are revealing to us about this great and terrible day of the Lord, mm-hmm. that, it, that it has these two sides to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that it's really important to understand that God's victory and God's vindication, it is not just about rescuing his people. It's not just about like Superman and flying in and plucking his people out of danger. Mm. What, what we're dealing with in these last chapters of Revelation is a picture of total and full restoration. Mm. And that will involve sorting out his, uh, his, um, his church, mm. like caring for his church and bringing his holy bride to the wedding feast. It will involve um, vindicating his name, showing his name to Israel and showing Israel that he's always been their covenant um, faithful God, but also showing his um, name, revealing himself um, to the nations. Um, 
What else are we seeing here? We're, we're seeing it's, it's God who gathers. That the, the end of history is not in anyone else's hands. Mm. God's bringing about his purposes for mercy and for judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the end, God will be vindicated. That means God will be seen for who he truly is. Mm-hmm. That is holy, uncompromising, um, uh, totally loving, but but totally sovereign and, uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and these nations th- will think that they're gathering to defeat I- Israel, mm-hmm. but God's going to work his purpose um, to actually gather the nations for battle in order to defeat Israel. Defeat them, and and this will um, reveal. This will be how he will reveal himself to Israel mm. as their protector and refuge. But it's also how he was. He's going to reveal his holiness um, to the nations. The nations and Israel will both know and see. Mm. And that's how come we know we're right at the end of the age. It's not by faith anymore. Mm. It's not a call to repentance. What's happening here is being unveiled to sight. That is, whether you like it or not, you're going to understand who God is Mm. and who the Lamb is and the total and complete victory that that has been won and that that has been veiled for so many years while God God awaits and brings um, things together for his purpose, but but will one day be finally unveiled in a total and undeniable way. Mm. Um, and we've we've seen this before, haven't we? Just to finish, the cross is the victory. Mm. That is where the victory has been won decisively. Mm-hmm. But but the the cross is a victory that is veiled under the form of the opposite. It looks like defeat. It looks um, humili- like humiliation and shame. It looks like separation. It looks like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But but it's actually the judgment of the world and um, the, the total victory over sin and death and all the enemies of God. Um, mm-hmm. For a period, that victory is open to faith. Mm-hmm. You can come to know the truth, but and that will lead to repentance. Mm. That is bending your knee, mm. sub- submitting to the king. Um, it will also result in hardening. We've seen that with the gospel, haven't we? The proclamation of the gospel will go out and have two effects on, on um, the hearers. For mm. some, it will be um, a, so- a soft word that will draw them to life and draw them to a response of repentance. For others um, who choose to reject it, Mm. it'll actually be um, a word that hardens them in their rebellion against God. Mm -hmm. Um, So... In these, in these two pictures, in Ezekiel and, and in Joel, we see the nations gathered and they will know and see. How, they, how will they know and see that God is holy and totally victorious? Well, they'll see it in their utter defeat and their destruction. Um, 
Israel will see it through God's um, redemption, the sa- the saving power of God in in um, uh, defending them, in being a being a refuge for His people. But both of these sides. Uh, are ultimately about revealing God's holy character and establishing his name, that, that he saves in righteousness. Mm-hmm. And, and it will culminate, culminate in a kingdom where um, God will, God will um, dwell with his people and, and the everlasting reign of the Messiah finally bringing um, heaven and earth together um, in a way that's revealed to sight, where God will come and dwell with his people and we will see like we're seen and know like we're known. That's the promise of, mm-hmm. of the day of the Lord for those that love him. So with chapter 19, the, the wedding I'm interpreting metaphorically is the battle, should I interpret it in the same way? not as a literal battle where the nations are going to gather around Israel and try and destroy them? Yeah, the, the, the short answer is I don't know. But what I would say is I agree with you that the first half of the picture is clearly metaphorical, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Mm. It's a picture that helps explain to the to his readers, John's readers in the early church, it helps to explain a relation, mm-hmm. the relation between the Lamb and his church. And I I see no reason why the second half of the chapter isn't a picture that seeks to explain a relation similarly. Mm-hmm. That is understanding how God is going to when Jesus returns, mm. how is that going to be experienced by Israel and the nations? Mm. Well, this picture of a battle mm. explains how Israel is going to experience a knowledge of God in mm. Jesus' return and how the nations are going to experience a knowledge of God in Jesus' return. Mm. Whether there is a literal military, political uh, gathering of forces against the state of Israel, I don't think that you could make, um, I don't think you could be 100% certain from reading Revelation. Mm. What you can be certain about, though, is, how is Israel going to understand the unveiling of Jesus in his return? Mm. How are the nations going to understand the unveiling of Jesus in his return? And they're both going to know about his holiness but in different ways. Mm. So one of the things we like to do at the end of these sessions is just have a think about how, how are we encouraged today? by what we're seeing in Revelation chapter 19. What difference does it make to how we live in the world mm-hmm. now? What, what do you think? Well, I think for me the encouragement is, is we need to be giving people an opportunity to repent now. Like this, this is pressing. We can't leave it till God reveals himself in all his holiness because the 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 time for repentance is 
before that. And once once he reveals himself by sight, it's going to be too late. Yeah. Yeah. So it really brings an urgency to the church and to us that we've got a we've got a we've got a testimony of Jesus yeah. to share with the world. And and this radical love that God wants people in the world to know about, mm. um, you know, it, there's a real urgency to 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 proclaim the truth and give people an opportunity mm. to be gathered. Um, the other thing that I that I think that I think is encouraging is this this is an amazing picture of our future hope you know it's in, mm. when you're on a when you're on a journey it's so helpful knowing where you where you're headed and what's going to happen when you get there mm. um and and there's something profound about this hope that um reassures our hearts that god is dealing with things properly mm. and that um the the waiting and the delay at the moment is because he's gracious. Mm. He's giving people time and opportunity to repent, but but when he when he comes and he again and he, and he's unveiled to sight, it's going to be the most amazing consummation because every relation, every part of his creation and universe is going to be restored properly, just mm. the way. He, he's intended, and it's an amazing picture of this lamb who's right at, right at the centre of things, who's a, a bridegroom but also a conqueror. Mm-hmm. And, and those two qualities in Jesus, uh, incredible intimacy and a desire for incredible intimacy but phenomenal power mm-hmm. as well and authority, these are two things that reassure our hearts. And by the Spirit, um, if you if you were to say to the Holy Spirit, what is it that you're bringing to us of Jesus' life? The two things I think that the Spirit would say is I'm sharing with you intimacy, that, that is closeness, relationship that's real and personal and um a love that's profound every day coming out of the throne room um, from heaven to earth. But it's also a, a, um, a life that's yours that is tremendously powerful, incredibly powerful um, in word and in deed. And, and um, God, that's what God wants for his people right now, to, to know him in intimacy but also to know him in power. And we need to pursue God about this and be open to it. Um, um, and to bo- both of those aspects, we need to, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge to think and reflect about it. And, and But more than that, to more and more live in the reality of that's who, that's the testimony of Jesus that's ours.